I'm Michael Counts, and this is Producing Innovation. Um, and I'm here today with a v old and dear friend and colleague, Howard Pyle, um, who I've known now for probably like 15 years, maybe. Yeah, 15. Jesus, yeah. wow. Yeah, long time. Long time. We were both um, 20 when we met. We were both 20. I was 18, yeah. but yeah, you were a little older. <laughs> <laughs> How do you produce innovation? How do you produce anything? It's always been about reinventing a form. I think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning. It's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of, I didn't even know what at the time. Show up, show up when you fail. Show up when you fail miserably. Show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to, to be a creator. Just start, like don't wait for permission. Sit down at the table with some of the great creators, some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation. This is Producing You're listening to Producing Innovation. A little preamble. Several of the things in my adult life and career, like pivot points, inflection points, like being introduced to a certain writer or a certain artist that like changed the course of everything for me, like three out of five of those came from Howard Pyle. Wow. Um, one of them- At least one of them was ramen. <laughs> yeah, I had never You've seen never a noodle ramen. like That's that. That's right. Um, I think it's so crinkly. <laughs> Um, one of them was uh, Ray Kurzweil. The, the longest book I've ever read three times. <laughs> the singularity is near. So we met and then Howard became uh, the president of my first company, uh, mm -hmm. Counts Media, which at that time was producing The Ride and Yellow Arrow and other media technology, media concepts we had. And, and at that time I thought, man, this guy has had a very broad career in like, you're an artist, you're like a master scuba diver, you're, you, you've worked in like media at a super high level at Pearson, if I'm remembering correctly. We did correctly. some work with Pearson, yeah. Yeah, like, so like all, yeah. all over the map. And then since then, like uh, Chayat Day, Ogilvy, IBM, now head of customer experience design at MetLife. Um, and uh, worth noting just before that at, at IBM, in what was the title? Yeah, I was the head of the Marketing Innovation Group, and um, and we launched this network of design studios uh, um, all over the world. Yeah, so a, a guy who has had a very far-reaching uh, career in so many respects, all on the front of it, all on the forefront of innovation. When I think about like producing innovation, when I think about sort of what we're trying to do here, like you're right at the the epicenter of so much of that. So um, I'm gonna shut up, and now I'm gonna I, I'll I'll give you a, like a like a tee off sure. question. Like so, g give us two things. One, your background. Give us like I just did. I butchered it and did a horrible job of introducing you. G tell us a little bit of the the arc of your career, sure. from like a punk rock kid sure. to like a head of customer experience for one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, and and what and because I know that innovation and technology and and pushing 
the boundaries on the frontier of, of many facets of technology, business, commerce, art, like has been where you've, what you've, has defined your career and your life in many respects. Like, what is that for you? Talk, talk about innovation, talk about your experience with it, and, and how do you see, you know, producing innovation in the ways that you do in your career and your work, how do you see that manifesting? And, and I'll just leave it to that. It's, uh, well, first of all, thank you for the setup. It's, mm -hmm. um, you make me feel very important. I guarantee you I'm definitely not that important. Well, you invented ramen. I invented so. ramen. That was my <laughs> one thing. Um, I, um, it was so funny. This morning I was, uh, I have some friends staying with me and, and I was talking to my wife and, and I was telling them that I was coming to do this with you. And they were saying, what's the podcast about? And I was talking about it a little bit and, and I was like, I have, I have no idea at all what to say about innovation at all, period. I have like, like I don't know, a blank spot, total blank spot. I have no idea what I'm going to say. And, um, um, but it's interesting. It's like, I, 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 but I, I think that just even before I kind of talk about the background, I think that the, like I spent the past couple of days knowing that I was going to come and talk to you, like thinking about how it's a word that we repeat so much that it almost becomes meaningless. And I literally had this, like, and you're right, like talking, like I have been, like I've done all these things that you would describe as innovation and I could make that case about my background. But the truth is, is that it's become this word that has, that, that is so overused that it actually, in many cases, can mean nothing. Um, and so I think this is actually a really important topic around like, like the, the, the inventing of ideas and the executing of ideas as part of a continuum. And I think that's really important. Um, but my background has really been, um, I definitely one of those people that I only understand my story in retrospect. Like I only understand kind of what I've done by looking backwards. Um, um, and I, I definitely am someone who, um, I never really felt a specific uh, long-term calling. I only felt like kind of an immediate pa immediate passions. Uh, some of them were very ill-advised. Um, but like for me, um, I spoke at an event recently and I was talking about how um, I think a very important a very important experience for me was not fitting in or having any sort of connection at school. You know, and I actually dropped out of college and not in, you know, because I was, you know, not focusing, but because I never really, I never really understood the system. I never really felt part of the system. I never really felt like I could, um, like I saw the trajectory of going from here to here to here to here to here. And I felt motivated to just go and work. And so I actually dropped out and I, um, uh, got involved with a record label in DC and I was playing in bands and shortly after that I started a software company and so I, I, I was just always very um, passionate about making and I got and all these different interests and it was it was music it was art it was software and like really early on um, I think that what I found was those different callings made me um, uh, satisfied creatively. They made me feel um, kind of whole, like making things made me feel whole. Um, and I got bored very easily. 
And I think over time, what ended up happening was I found myself seeing the connectivity between some of those things. And um, so when I think about the word innovation and I think about what I do with it, I would describe myself um, as a creative systems person. Um, and I think all the jobs that I've had have been about how to make something work within a system. You know, how to take an idea through to execution, how to make something come to life. And I think you're very much the same way. And I think, um, you know, you're, you're using the word producing. Um, and what you're doing and what you're describing and what you've done in your career is about taking an idea and weaving it through the business parts, the legal parts, the technical parts, the execution parts in order to make it real. And I think that there's, um, I think producing is one way of describing it. Um, in the world I come from, um, I would describe it as systems thinking. And um, so my, my, my work was early on in kind of the dot-com era, in digital agencies. Um, I was the head of gaming technology for a gaming company for a while. Uh, I ran a consultancy for a while, um, and then I started working with you, and you know we got uh, we did all that great work with Yellow Arrow and and the ride, and um, and I reached this very critical point where um, um, we had kind of uh, taken the company that we were working on in two directions. Uh, and we had this opportunity to um, kind of get rolled up into a big advertising network, and I was very worried about that. At the time, and this is when we when when we started working with TBWA, and um, and the worry was, um, what is their role in creativity and innovation? To that point exactly, and I think that um, uh, this was this kind of beginning of this journey in advertise more in advertising and in marketing. Um, and I went from there to Ogilvy, and I ran the digital relationship with IBM. Um, at Ogilvy, and then I went to IBM and I ran this network of design studios. And the thing that I've, so I've been on this journey for the past 10 years really about what's the relationship between communications, design, technology, product development, and big business. And um, which is very weird being a punk rock college dropout. Uh, I'm not really sure how that happened, but whatever. Um, and, you know, I think what that, what this journey has kind of taught me is that um, I believe that we're entering a new era of innovation, which is really focused on how systems behave as opposed to how individual experiences kind of hit the glass for customers. Mm -hmm. So an example of that would be um, if an innovation is around a single app, say, the innovation is that you can now order your car through your phone with a map and see where your car is. That's an innovation, right? Uh, it's an app, it's an experience, and sure, there's technology behind it, there's different systems, there's different tools, but that's very different than thinking about grouping citizens together in order to allow them to participate in elections differently, or allowing people to be a part of, um, uh, or control or design their education in a totally different way. And I think we're entering an era where innovation is going to become more about how large systems behave. Government, large corporations, education, finance, creativity, entertainment. Um, I mean, just even think about the choices that we have in terms of consuming content. 
right? It's not about watching a single TV show. It's like you can mix and match and program your own life, right? That's a, that's a, and that's a, and that is a system, right? Um, so I think we're on this, 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 like when I think about the work that I'm doing, it's more about how do large systems behave and how do you innovate those systems to behave differently? Um, which is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a heady thing because I end up, I've ended up looking at big things like how does a company like IBM behave with its customers globally? Or how does IBM behave with, you know, 200 million developers worldwide? Or how does MetLife, that operates in 40 countries, like how does it change how it relates to customers in all 40 markets? I don't know, I don't know how I got there, but I'm, I'm very passionate about it and I find myself thinking about that sort of large scale change quite a bit. So the question I got to, my, to, to, to in this morning is, is that innovation? Like, is that really innovation? Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of a, a question that I came into this conversation thinking a lot about. I mean, one of the things about you that has always blown my mind is the, and in hearing you describe, you know, how you see it and, and how it applies to systems is so fascinating because you, more than any creative person I've ever known, work in these monster systems. Like working at IBM where they have, I don't know, 380,000 employees worldwide and touch every every facet of, of life today of what it means to be alive on the planet MetLife 50,000 employees 90 million customer individual mm -hmm. customers like like I just can't even fathom that honestly like and how how I, we, we've in chats before we've likened it to like like piloting a super tanker you know and, and it's like it, it turns slowly and it stops slowly and any moves it's there's not an agility or nimbleness to it like how do you affect change in systems like that? That's that. That's the. That's the. Um, that is absolutely the hardest part of it, and it's interesting because it's the second half of the, like the thesis for for this podcast, which is like, how do you produce change? Well, let me tell you about the work that I do now because I think that that I can give it some context. So the work that I do right now is, um, we're really trying to reshape the way customers in all these different markets experience this company. Um, and the weird thing about that is that everything that everybody does at the company affects how customers experience the company, right? So you, the way your pricing is set affects your experience. The way your you know data is captured affects your experience. The way that the terms and conditions are, in addition to the screens or the advertising or the, you know what I mean? And um, so our part of it is about designing how people move through their relationship with us and what common elements do we create? So our team runs visual brand design. Um, we're the team that um, uh, helped replace Snoopy with our new branding. Um, our team runs user experience design. So digital design, um, design thinking, experience strategy. So all the digital applications we do the design for. We run content strategy and content marketing on all of our social channels. So how do people experience or consume content? Um, we also are responsible for um, the digital marketing technology stack. So like what are the tool sets that we create? How do we publish content? How do we publish things on the web and social media? How do we do personalization, that sort of thing? Um, and we actually also manage all of our sponsorship and, and and advertising. And um, so 
that's a, an enormous body of work, but what it allows us to do is to think about um, how do you create things like a design, a visual design system that changes how people s literally see the company. So that's everything from like logos on buildings to the way that websites look to the, what you receive in the mail if you get a bill. Um, looking at things like how do digital applications look and work? How do they become common? How do they, how do they create um, uh, an ease or a simplicity? Um, and how does one application look similar to another application? Um, how does what you read in a feed on Twitter relate to what product you're buying and what you know you might read on a website or read about us in the press? And so these are like what we're trying to do is to create uh, kind of common touch points and common elements, even though it's a lot of different teams that are actually executing this in market. So part of how we create it is that we create visual design systems and toolkits and visual assets that different markets can use. We create uh, what we call patterns in, in UX. So how do you create the building blocks that developers can use to make new web, web applications or mobile applications, et cetera? How do you create methods for doing content strategy so that people in you know, Chile or Turkey or China can roll out content in a way that's consistent that matches needs of their market, but is done in a way that is kind of MetLife at its core. So it's this balance of um, creating, well, how do we do it in a large organization? It's, we, it's this balance of the right individual places to drive that innovation and do it, doing it in a way where you're creating a system that other people can use and build off of um, as almost as building blocks. Mm. So, you know, if you, um, uh, an interesting example is you can buy a Lego kit, right? And um, you could buy the Batman Lego kit, or you can buy the Superman Lego kit, or you can just buy a regular old Lego kit. But because Lego as a system is designed in a common way, there's the four bricks, there's the this piece, the wheels work this way, the joints work this way, you could take those kits and make something new. It's still Lego. It may not be Batman anymore. It may not be Superman anymore, but it's still Lego, right? And so I think that um, the philosophy for how we're thinking about ex uh, customer experience design is how do those things kind of come together as a system that creates building blocks? Um, and so that's what we've done. We've rolled out. We've rolled out our brand system in 40 countries. We've rolled out our new websites in 40 countries. We've rolled out a new marketing technology stack, so it's literally the tool sets that people can use. Um, and then each individual market needs to create their products, their communications, their marketing campaigns built on top of that. And what you have as a result, a couple of years later, is the MetLife of today looks very consistent looks dramatically different from the way it was. Now, there's still challenges in terms of our products or servicing or things like that, and we're not all the way where we need to be in terms of experience design by any stretch. But if you look, if you took a snapshot of MetLife in 2015 and MetLife today, it looks dramatically different. It feels dramatically different. We're not all the way there yet, but it's a different thing. So it's an evolution.
Um, and so that's, that's a little bit of how we've moved the ball. Katie here. We're taking a quick break from the episode to remind you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Counts Projects or on our website at CountsProjects.com. It's the best way to keep up with our current work and find out more about what we're working on. Okay, back to the episode. How would you say that that compares or other similarities, similar objectives as to what you were doing at IBM as to what you're doing at MetLife? I mean, it's a very different customer experience, a very different product set, service yeah. set, but like, how did moving from IBM to MetLife on your trajectory make sense? Like, what, what were you doing at, Met, That's a good at, question. at IBM that made the people who were hiring you at MetLife say, oh, this is the guy for us? Yeah, um, I think that you know, so at IBM, we were, the first group that I was in did something very different. We were, we were focused on kind of the intersection of the, the customer experience, the brand design, and the product design. And we created these design studios to bring together designers, developers, you know, writers, analysts on these agile scrum teams, these little startup teams, and we would aim them at very specific high value problems. So like the launch of Watson, the launch of our cloud business, the launch of, you know, uh, marketplaces that we were creating. And we would um, dedicate those teams and we would iterate. And that was actually much more about innovating on how we produced, right? So we totally changed the way we operated and brought together um, people from you know 14 different agencies and 26 different groups within IBM, and we cherry picked and we made these little teams. So we would launch these products, we would launch these these experiences, um, uh, and we ended up creating um, I think over a hundred of these little teams. So um, and you know over three years, and we launched facilities in New York, in London, in Tokyo, and in uh, India. So it was a very interesting change in how IBM was operating and dealing with that. And actually, their entire marketing organization has been modeling in that innovation of how you work for the past several years. And they've moved people, they're dedicating people on teams, they're all running in Agile now. You have to be physically co-located in the same place. So the first part of that, that work was actually much more focused on innovating how, on how you work. Um, the second part of my work at IBM was really focused on um, thinking about how IBM, as a large global company, with you know these giant business units, um, engages with software developers, which is a really weird problem. Um, so for IBM, the history was that you know for a long time a place like IBM had a lock on you know people that studied computer science. And um, it would be a, 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 an ideal place to work. But then, you know, you had this thing where you had the democratization of software development. Um, there was this very interesting moment where, where, where there was a $600 million cloud infrastructure bid from the CIA that IBM lost to Amazon. And IBM at the time was like, wait, what? Like, we lost this. Like, this is our backyard. Like, this is like defense IT. How do we lose it to a bookseller? Like they just didn't get it. And it was this wake up call that number one, there were major players and they weren't the players that IBM had been battling for a long time, like Oracle or Microsoft. Um, and they didn't, they weren't even 
clear on why Amazon was offering, you know, cloud services, period. And one of the things that they realized was that the developers within the CIA, the software developers, were creating demos for things that they wanted to make on Amazon Web Services because they could just log on and swipe a credit card or create an account and create a demo. And they were showing those demos to their bosses and their bosses were like, yeah, I just want it to work like that. So when Amazon rolled in to pitch, all the stuff they'd already seen was already built on Amazon. So that's like, and that, I think that's what I would describe as disruption. Like mm-hmm. that's like super disruptive. And so IBM had a, um, had a massive disruption that they were facing and still is. Um, and so one of the things they realized is that IBM sold, sells to VPs, to CIOs, to CEOs, to, but, but that developers influence those purchase decisions. So how do you create a relationship with a group of people that aren't actually your customers, but that influence the purchase decision? That was, uh, so the second job I had at IBM was head of developer marketing, which was really about how do you create a brand relationship? How do you educate developers that IBM has an important role in, in software development? That, you know, like that, what all the tool sets that IBM offers. So what we did was we created design systems that made IBM look consistent across the different business units. We created, you know, messaging and creative strategies so that any business unit talking to a software developer would appear as kind of one IBM. Um, we, we changed the way that we appeared at developer conferences. We changed the way that we showed up. We tried to thread the um, uh, design that we did into the products itself, right? Whereas before that was like way, way, you know, different, different universes. Um, so at, I became really interested in this idea that the experience of a company and your relationship, your emotional relationship with the brand is the sum of all your interactions with the company. And so I started to be very interested in this idea of going from branding and brand design to interaction design, to software design, to the way the technology is managed. And, um, and, I, and MetLife approached me about this job that was exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was interested in it because it, there was this breadth between you know, launching a new global brand and relaunching the global marketing stack. Um, and so, because um, to me, those things are connected. And we've seen situations where the way we want to design something influences the way technology decisions are made. Um, and so the position that I'm in is I can, and vice versa, like I can talk to designers about how the technology stack influences the way that their design patterns should work. And so the good news about this long, weird, winding career that I've had is that I can have both engineering conversations and go to a photo shoot and talk about the creative at a photo shoot or talk to designers about design systems. So for me, it's been a lot about stitching those things together. And that's what, um, so that's what brought me to MetLife. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can, it's, it's, it sounds like creating accessibility Hmm. on a bunch of different frontiers from creating at, at IBM a sort of startup culture almost with these small packs and scrum teams creating things and failing fast and hmm. operating more like a, I don't know, like a startup Silicon Valley kind of incubator vibe. Yeah. It, it allows 
a certain like cultural alignment with the way things exist today. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, and I definitely, you know, I'm on the other end of the spectrum here at MetLife, which like I'm in the belly of the beast of like real corporate management, you know, um, managing te- you know, managing people and having people that report to me in like, you know, in, in Buenos Aires and Singapore and Dubai and you know what I mean? And how do you, how do you navigate teams working together like that? And it, it's, it's, it's an interesting point and it goes to kind of your thesis here, which is in order to really, in order to do innovative work and new work, you have to work differently. And I think that, that that's, that's an interesting topic because it means that a lot of smaller organizations are going to be able to do things faster and do in more innovative things by default because they can change how they work much more easily. Like there are systems and processes within MetLife and, and management routines that were set up literally before there were computers. So how does that work when you're supposed to pivot fast or be agile or you know, when you're supposed to, you know, respond to something that happened an hour ago on Twitter. Like, like, big companies have to re-architect how they work, and they're just not set up for it. So that's like, that's a, that's a, we'll leave that for the next generation. That's a, that's a big, that's a big topic that's got to get solved. Wow. What, man, there's like, there are like, I just feel like my head is spinning with like a million questions because... This is such a unique conversation relative to conversations we've had before, you know, that, that like ranging from Jonathan Schnapp and operating the Royal Palm Shuffleboard Club and creating a, a you know, addressing his, his issues of customer experience and how do people feel about shuffleboard when they walk in? What mm-hmm. do they see and what's the vibe and how does mm-hmm. he transport them to Miami in the 50s and Juanes? Mm. But on a certain level, the, the, the fundamentals are the same. It's like, how do you, you know, as you were talking, I was reminded of somebody who once said to me, like, Michael, you want to think differently, see different things. Like, you want to, mm. like, walk a different route to the subway in the morning. Mm. Just to, like, mm. have the inputs, the, 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 the stimuli be different, you'll, you'll, on some level, you'll start to think different things or mm. put yourself in different contexts. Listen to music that you don't normally mm. listen to. Mm-hmm. And it's it sort of, a, I was feeling like that's obviously on a very personal, individual, creative level. But in a way, there's something like, there's something consistent with that and what you're saying about these huge systems. Like, how do you create a culture or how do you create opportunities for a culture in a company as big as a MetLife or an IBM to think in ways they haven't thought before, to see problems in a different way, to address challenges as the technology changes. It's an interesting point. So, so I think this is, it's a good moment to kind of talk about um, what are innovation practices at large companies, right? Because I think that um, um, one of the things that I've seen is that big companies Pretty much every big company you go to right now is going to have an innovation group, right? And it's typically going to look something like this. There's going to be a, an, a, some sort of relationship with some kind of startup firm, whether it's Techstars or you know Y Combinator or some other group. They're going to have some physical space where they like bring kind of people that are typically tattooed and you know maybe just got out of college. They're going to be doing some things. 
Um, and then there'll be like little pockets of that spread throughout the company. And if they're, um, if they're really serious, they'll also have money that they put into external organizations, right? I'm being cynical for a reason. But I think that um, um, what ends up happening is that there's this impression of what change is. Let's just forget the word innovation for a second. But there's this impression of what change is that's about inventing singular new ideas or dabbling in new things versus actually changing the way big organizations work, right? So one of the things that's happening is that there's been this obsession with um, uh, methods, right? How, like, methods of work within big companies. Um, and that's been going on for, obviously, a very long time. But one but one thing that companies are being uh, are obsessed with right now is agile, and the other thing is design thinking, right? And and I'm you know kind of here uh, you know uh, can, can you define those two yeah, things yeah. just, just for, so, for the unindoctrinated? These are two terms along with innovation that I think are really overused to the point of kind of almost being meaningless, especially within big companies. Right? People will say, oh, we need to be agile, or oh, we need to employ design thinking, or oh, we need to we need to bring some innovation into this. And what they really mean is. You know, someone please do something because something needs to happen. Um, so agile, um, agile really is. Um, it comes out of lean and lean manufacturing um, and some of the innovations that that actually Toyota pioneered, which was about um, quality control. On uh, software developer, group of software developers um, got together in the early 2000s and wrote this thing called the Agile Manifesto which was about, you know, no longer will we accept a giant phone book of requirements of what you want our software to do. We are going to start making stuff. We're going to make the simplest thing we can make to put it in the hands of users to see if it works. And if it doesn't, we're going to change. So agile means pivot quickly. It means fail fast. It means try something, make something. If it doesn't work, do something differently. It's like the Wright brothers versus Admiral Langley. Yeah, know, like. totally. Big organizations are obsessed with Agile because they want to, I think mistakenly, they think Agile makes things faster. What it does is it releases things faster. Like it'll release software faster, It'll but, but smaller pieces of software. And in a way, um, you're never done. In a way, you're never done. And that's the difference, is that you know, a big company wants to have the plan, have the plan for the plan, have the plan for the plan for the plan, present the plan, present the plan of, of the plan of the plan, get everyone to agree to it, and then invest in the plan, and then make the plan, then deliver the plan, and then checkbox, you delivered the plan, right? And um, whereas Agile is much more about, let's focus on this. What are we going to do in two weeks? Let's deliver that. Let's put it in the hands of customers. And, and, and I think that... Um, the the reason why this is important in big companies is that people realize that big companies get stuck in their own processes and nothing ever hits the glass with customers. Nothing ever gets into the hands of customers. So Agile gets it into the hands quicker, so that helps change happen faster, right? So that's one big kind of territory that 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 big companies are obsessed with right now. So. And design thinking is really the, pro the, the it's a methodology that was pioneered by IDEO and the, the people at the Stanford Design School. And it's really about this idea of bringing a group of people together that can have creative thinking, that can understand the feasibility of a problem, like software engineers or you know, architects or whatever, and, and business people, or people who can speak to the value you're trying to create, 
and this process of throwing everything up on the wall that you could possibly do and then editing it down to the most valuable thing, the most creative thing, the most feasible thing. Um, and, um, and those two things have become things that allow organizations to work differently. So it's one thing to say we have an innovation lab. It's another thing to say that we have money that we're investing in innovation or startups. But it's another thing to say that all of our teams are coming together to work collectively to think about what's the simplest thing we can put into the hands of the customer in two weeks. That's actually a change in behavior. And I think that's where big companies are pivoting to right now. Um, and it's very hard. It's very painful. So the, the, the point here is how you work at a big company is as important as how you're trying to innovate. Um, and I think where a lot of companies can come up with great ideas or hire people to come up with great ideas for them, their ability to execute them is very limited typically, unless they are an innovation company at heart, really. Where do you, like outside of IBM, MetLife, big companies, small companies, really anywhere, where do you see the most innovative stuff happening that just gets you excited? I think that the... Um, um, I think the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is in kind of organizations as organisms. I think there's very few people who are good with a, with a blank sheet of paper. You know, um, I think you're actually one of the few people that I know that like give you a box of index cards and you'll, you know, make magic, you know. Um, and I think most people, myself included, like, we need things and people and systems and input to react to, and innovation can happen as a result of that. But I think it's like long gone are the days where it's like we're gonna have the superhero inventor inventing things and everyone else is a plebe. Mm. You know, I think that large organizations and any organization, and I'm including things like government, universities, as well as big business, need to be innovation organizations, and that means they need to do different things. So the thing that I'm most passionate about and most interested in right now is how do the humans at those organizations become part of the organization in a way that they bring their best thinking? And that means how does the organization match the purpose of the collective? How does the organization work in a way that's more human? How does the organization allow for, for, for those teams or groups to work together in a way that, that isn't you know, inhuman? And I think that um, as a result, when you have that, you have organizations that produce a lot of change for the world. I think that the, the biggest tragedy of the 20th century is you have these giant institutions that almost produce nothing. Yeah, sure, they might produce revenue, or they might produce, but what are they, you know, what are they, what are they doing to change the world? And I think now every organization, to a certain degree, has to be in the business of changing the world. But that means, really engaging the humans that are a part of it. So the thing that I'm most interested in is how, right now, right the second, is how are big organizations, how are large institutions really bringing purpose into the heart of what they're doing. The thing I'm interested in culturally is stuff like where the employees of Microsoft write a letter to the CEO and say, we don't want this technology to be used for this purpose, for defense. It's about the collective organism acting together. I think that's very fascinating to me because I think there's going to, the reason why I'm interested in, in the context of this question is I think there's going to be entirely new waves of thinking that come 
when big organizations start to act as organisms and stop acting like sociopaths. Wow, totally. Last question. It's funny. I've, I've asked this question of everyone we've had on the podcast so far, and I feel like given the trajectory of your career, this is such a different question for you. The question is, yeah. knowing what you know today, yeah. what advice would you give your 22-year-old or 16-year-old or younger self, right? And it's like, I think about like, okay, you as you know, executive at MetLife talking to the punk rock kid, you know, of, 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 of the early days. And maybe that's, maybe that's not the right intersection. Yeah, no, maybe it's saying. like in saying. early media or, or what would you say to this, the, the, the Howard pile that started the software company in his twenties yeah. as an executive who knows what he knows now about systems. And maybe that's a fair way to ask the question, but like, invest what in Apple. <laughs> Um, yeah it's a good question Um, I think the one the one piece of advice is that following your passions will pay out you know and I think that um, it's every plan that I've ever made for myself about how my passions will play out has ended differently and bigger than I had anticipated and I don't mean always successful Make, even if the thing I was trying to do failed, like I landed a place that's, that's different and better than I would have imagined. And I think that, for me, I think that there's a um, there's an obsession with um, education and specifically universities. Uh, I, I think that um, I think there's an obsession with career trajectory. I think we don't do things culturally like take sabbaticals. You know what I mean? I think that you know we're expected to align ourselves with with an industry or a job role early on, like change your career, change your job, change your major, drop out of school, like but just be passionate. Like whatever you do, like do it passionately. And I think that that's been um, I think the amount of resistance I've gotten for that my entire career, including now, is pretty amazing. So it's funny early in career. I would have had major, major resistance or pushback from like corporate types. It's interesting because now I have people that I like, like old art friends. They're like, "What are you doing? What are you doing? Like, why are you working there?" And um, and and there's an idea that I'm passionate about that I'm pursuing, and then and, and down the road I'll have another idea that I'm passionate about, and and I think it's about having faith in the things that we're passionate about. That there's not there's not enough there's not enough emphasis on that in our culture. I, I couldn't agree more, and I th- I'm reminded of the uh, the film about Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre said of Jimmy Iovine that he 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 did that. He was fearlessly willing to abandon what he was known for mm. and move into new new like new frontiers. And I, it's funny, I I hadn't connected that common DNA with you mm-hmm. and I and I've always admired your career and I've always admired you as a as a as a as a creator as a person as a business person but it it, it is until just now that I really understood that we've both done that mm. we've both followed our passion even when it led us into places that were so improbable because if you look at like the history of my career you know like art kid Mm-hmm. Theater, mm-hmm. immersive theater, entertainment. Yep. People who, when I went from like making avant-garde theater in Brooklyn in a warehouse to making the ride, people were like, "What the fuck yeah. are you doing?" Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and then moving from that into 
doing other things in tech and media and 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 early like pioneering stuff on cell yeah. phones with yellow yeah. arrows like how does that connect with anything you've done before yeah. and my answer was i'm not sure but it feels like the next thing and and it's and i feel i can see that through to today in both what i've done and what what you've done and and i I honestly think there's a common denominator with everything that we've talked about today which is which is so like so complex on so many levels but there's also a simplicity to it which is a willingness to do things differently to change i mean because we're systems too just as organizations are systems i mean we're complex systems that have habits and behaviors that establish over decades and can limit us in the way we approach problems or the way we approach our careers or our lives or the the next challenge and being willing to like abandon all that and do something new and step into uncharted territory i mean that is the common denominator between you, me, IBM, MetLife. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The government. That's know? right. And I think I think that the um, the one thing about following your passions is that very, very, very rarely will there be ego gratification in that. Very rarely will people be like, "Oh my God, like that's amazing that you're following up your your passion." I mean, it's well, and, 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 until, until you're until, successful. Until the end, until until you're successful, successful. Until the end game. Then it, then it's like, oh my God, that was so obvious. <laughs> So obvious, and, except and, it and, wasn't. And I think that's right, and I think what ends up happening is that, and I know you've experienced this too, is that you'll have an, a chorus of people explaining to you why you're an idiot, and um, and I think that's why we need to we need to foster and reward and support and engage, you know, the pursuit of passion. Period. You know what I mean? And there needs to be. Um, that needs to be something that our culture celebrates as opposed to accomplishment or achievement, which results in shortcuts, which results in backstabbing, which result, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that there's, um, um, so I, I mean, I feel like dropping out of school was the right thing for me because I wasn't passionate about it. It's like that's simple. Like that's, that's, do you know what I mean? Like I'm, yeah. I'm a passionate learner, like I'm very, uh, you know, but I wasn't passionate about being in school. So therefore, it's the wrong thing for me. Is it the right thing for other people? Sure, if you're passionate about it. You know, you're like thinking about your teenage kids. You're like, don't play that part for my teenage kids. No, you should, <laughs> you should hear the debates that Sharon and I have about the, the, the educational trajectories of our kids. But so we go from the extremely complex to the extremely simple. Yeah. And that is our conversation with Howard Pyle today. Howard, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, man. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, man. Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.